Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think is wrong with the world? It's a big question. It's a deep question. And I suspect that it's one that we all have an answer to. Uh, because it's not too hard to look around and find something that's wrong with the world, is it? So we asked UWA this question last week at Club Carnival. And here are some of the answers that we received. Um, first of all, we came up with something along the lines of inequality. I'm not sure you can see all those up the front. Poverty, ignorance and stuff. Now, whether it be the distribution of wealth or access to education or food and water, if we could just give people equal rights and opportunities, then we could just save the world. Here's another. This one I've labelled oppression. Whether there's the exploitation of the poor or white privilege or the oppression of women by the patriarchy or the stealing of land from indigenous peoples like in Australia, if we could just remove the oppressor and enfranchise the oppressed, then we could save the world. Uh, What about this one? This is an oldie but a goodie. Climate change. Now, this is quite a literal answer. Our world is dying and we're the ones that are killing it. Overpopulation, pollution, deforestation. If we could just, as a global society, work out how to live sustainably and thoughtfully, we could save the world. Uh, How about we do one more? This one's my favourite. TikTok. (laughs) I'm in my 30s. It's well after my time. I have no idea what's going on with that. But when we stop and think about it, right, we get all our giggles out. There's actually more concerning about TikTok than we might first think. Social media has completely changed the way that we think and the way that we relate. Everything about it has flipped our life. Polarisation, misinformation, conspiracy theories, rising loneliness, mental health, cyberbullying, the list goes on. Maybe if we just got rid of social media, then maybe we could just save the world. Now, whatever it is you think when you look at that board, one of the things that should be abundantly obvious to all of us is that there is something wrong with our world that needs fixing. And asking that question, what is wrong with the world, is really important for us because your answer to that question will then influence what you think the solution should be. Because if you think education is the problem, well, then you would have turned up at the rally last week and protested UWA's cuts to social sciences. Um, If you thought the problem was inequality, then what you would do is you'd seek to promote diversity on boards and and governing bodies and those sorts of things in government and in business. If you thought the issue was an outdated and oppressive set of views on sexuality and gender, then you would quite naturally cancel and deplatform anyone who holds them because all they do is damage. It's a whole bunch of options on the table, problems and then corresponding solutions. And if one thing social media has taught us Uh, in the time that it's been around, it's that not everyone's voice is as equal as the others. Now, what I want to suggest today is that there is one voice in particular that is worth paying attention to, and that's the voice of Jesus. No one has more profoundly shaped our civilization than Jesus, and he still has things to say. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a Bible passage in one of the four Gospels called Mark, and in it, Jesus tells us what he thinks is wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world, according to Jesus, is sin. And the fundamental problem that we have, if we can solve that problem, then everything else is solved. Inequality, oppression, climate change, even TikTok. And so for the rest of the time that we have this afternoon, what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at what Jesus has to say. We're going to do it in three stages. We're going to look at the problem. We're then going to look at Jesus' offered solution 
And then we're going to circle back around and return to the question, uh, what is wrong with the world? And then ask us, where to from here? And then I want to lay some options out for you about how you might choose to shape your life around what Jesus has to say. So let's begin. Uh, Let's have a look at the problem. The problem is sin. Uh, Now, the story in today's passage in Mark chapter 2 kind of demonstrates for us the very early days of Jesus' teaching ministry. And if you look there in verse 1, you see that he's getting so popular that people all around are seeking him out such that he can't go about his normal business. And so the paparazzi and those who are looking to him for healing, they become so overwhelming that he can't enter a town openly anymore. And so he has to stick to the outskirts of society. Uh, And we see at the beginning there in verse 1 that Jesus finally re-enters society uh, and returns home in a place called Capernaum. Now, naturally, people hear about this, that he's come home, and so they gather to him in large numbers. Uh, I saw Mark McGowan on campus last semester. Similar story of salvation, except this was the saviour of Western Australia. And as he walked past the ref, all eyes were on him. All conversations stopped and people started to physically gravitate towards him. You know, a few people snuck in and got a selfie, got around the bodyguard, did all those sorts of things. And that's what's happening with Jesus here. He is well known. And so when they hear where he is, people drop tools, they leave food on the stove, they get their kids out of school and they head to where Jesus is. And we're told there that the crowd is so big that the house that Jesus is in is practically packed. So no social distancing here whatsoever. And then the next bit of the action, we see some men turn up. Uh, There's four of them, presumably, uh, and they're carrying with them a paralyzed man and they can't get into the house. They need Jesus because Jesus is renowned for healing. They've got a friend who can't walk. So what do you do when you're a law-abiding citizen and you've got a paralyzed man? Well, you literally rip the roof off, which is what they do. Now, this might seem simple to you. I just had some air conditioning installed at my place. The process, very simple. Step one, ladder. Step two, take some tiles off. They're not even glued on and all of a sudden you're in, right? Not so back then in the first century. They would have had stair access, that's fine, don't need a ladder. But they've actually got to dig through a combination of like hardened clay and beams and other material because roofs back then were functionally the floor for the second story. And so it's kind of worth pausing at this point to kind of think about this. Who does this? This requires tools. How, how, how do you dig through a roof? Why would you do this? You've got a paralyzed friend, can't get to Jesus. You've either got to be very, very desperate or very, very confident that if you can just get him to Jesus, your friend will be healed. Now, the way the story is told there is that um, I'm thinking I'm leaning towards confident. They lower him through the roof uh, and we see there in verse five that Jesus saw their faith. So these guys are supremely confident. They swing in like a wrecking ball. They do some structural damage to private property. But the road is clear and the moment for healing has arrived, as signalled by the door alarm. (laughs) They didn't have bows back then. It would have been the plaster from the roof that would have alerted to them that something was happening. And they drop him through the roof and Jesus looks at the paralytic and he opens his mouth and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I've got to say that is the most underwhelming thing that you'd expect Jesus to say. You've got a packed crowd. They know what's happening. Here's a guy with an illness. This is not diagnostically difficult. Jesus, he can't walk. You're a healer. He needs healing. Do the maths. And yet Jesus doesn't. 
He's healed many times before. And so it begs the question, why doesn't he do it this time? Why does he say your sins are forgiven? And I think what Jesus is doing here is that he is taking us beyond the presenting problem to the final diagnosis. And it's not because he's kind of stalling for time as though this healing is just going to be a a bit harder so he has to muster up some sort of inner strength because a little bit later on in the story, we see him heal him with a word. Now, he wants to make a point to us about the man's real problem and it's not the answer that we would expect. Because if we would answer that question, what is the man's problem? Well, what would we say? I think we'd say things like this. Uh, It's a problem of education. Uh, If they had just had the medical knowledge, they could have intervened at birth, although they could have put him through some sort of reconstructive surgery. Uh, Or if not education, then maybe inequality. There's that one from before again. Capernaum was the backwaters of Jerusalem. It was poverty central. And they just didn't have the money to access affordable and decent health care. Maybe that was the issue. And if not equality, then maybe oppression. After all, he was a member of an occupied nation. They wouldn't have been treated particularly well. Now, those are all options on the table, and any and all of them could very well be true. But Jesus cuts through it all and says that underneath all these presenting problems, whether they're physical, whether they're mental, whether they're social, there is a root spiritual problem that causes them all. And that problem is sin. And that's what Jesus has said, says is wrong with the world. Now, I want to be careful here because I've intentionally described sin as a spiritual problem. Because the danger that we run is we run the danger of thinking that sin is sort of like a problem of selfishness. I know it's an old word, but we still kind of have this notion that sin is doing bad things. As if to say that, you know, the way that we deal with sin, um, it's just if the world could just start loving its neighbor as themselves, then it would all be sorted. But notice, according to Jesus, that the man's sins need to be forgiven, not just stopped. And that indicates something about what sin is. Because it's not merely something bad that we need to stop doing. It's relational. It's an offence. Specifically, it's an offence against God. And if you look there in verse 7, it's the reason why the teachers of the law get so riled up that Jesus would say such a thing. Because the only one who can forgive wrongdoing is the one who is wronged. And so in their mind, Jesus can't claim that authority. Only God can forgive sin because he's the one that sin is done against. And understanding that fundamentally relational nature of sin as something done by people to God is critical to understand Jesus' final diagnosis. Because what he says is the world has disregarded the God who made it and rightfully rules it. They've disobeyed him, they've ignored him, they've lived their lives without reference to him, which means the world that God has created, the world as he created it to be, which was to be harmoniously in relationship with him, blessing of his rule everywhere without sickness sorrow or pain that world cannot be not until the sin of the world is removed and until that happens something will always be wrong with the world so you might ask at this point well you know if god is a loving and powerful god why doesn't he just intervene and remove the sin and the answer put simply is because if he did that he would have to remove you and i Notice that it's the paralytic that Jesus says to, your sins are forgiven. It's a bit strange when you think about it, right? Because the paralytic is the victim in all of this. He doesn't say or do anything. He's the passive sufferer. And so surely the evil that has caused this problem is out there. But the implications of Jesus' words are obvious. Evil is not simply a matter, simply a matter of kind of us versus them, as though if we just cancel the right people, then, then order will be restored to the world. 
Now, Jesus' point is that evil resides in all of us because all of us have disobeyed the God who made us. Alexander, I've got to get this last name right, Solzhenitsyn uh, was a Russian political prisoner uh, in the gulags. Uh, these effectively were concentration camps. Over a period of about 30, 40 years, 1.5 million people were killed. Uh, he suffered great injustices at the hands of his jailers, and he had every right to say that what was wrong with the world was out there and not in here. But his reflection was that it could have just as easily been flipped and he could have been the jailer and they the prisoner if the circumstances were different. And, and reflecting on his time here, he says this, Gradually it was disclosed to me that the lines separating good and evil passed not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And what Solzhenitsyn would say and what Jesus is saying to us is that this is true of you too. The problem with the world is not outside of us. It's within us. And now that means we have two problems, one with the world and one with ourselves. Because Jesus is very clear on this. If sin is not forgiven, it is judged. And that means, to put it bluntly, eternity, and that means hell. But thank God that there is more to this story than just the problem. Because Jesus not only identifies the problem for us, he gives us the solution, and that solution is himself. And as the story continues to unfold, we see him make two claims that assure us that if we come to him in faith as the paralytic did, as his friends did, then he will take our problem, make it his problem, and do away with it completely. And first of all, he makes these two claims. The first one is he tells us that he has the authority to forgive sins. And this is really the climax of the first story. Uh, so far, we've seen the guy drop through the roof. Uh, and Jesus' ability to heal really has never been in doubt, even though he doesn't do it. He's got witnesses. He's on the public record. Uh, but his ability to forgive sins, however, that's new. That's something that needs to be established. And he does that by responding to the teachers of the law that I referred to earlier. So they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy because obviously the only one who has the authority to forgive sins is the one sinned against God. And so by claiming to forgive sins, Jesus is usurping the right that only God has. Now, Jesus, he knows what they're thinking, and he says to them there in verse 9, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, the answer is obvious, right? Forgiveness is easier to say because it can't be verified. If I said to somebody, you know, on campus, get out of your wheelchair, it's not going to take people very long to realise that I'm barking mad. But Jesus goes on and he says this. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's his term for himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he turns to the man and he says to him, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. You guys don't have mats, but you can go home, okay? It's all right. Thanks for the light. That is helpful. Even if it was accidental. And in saying that, he says to the man, the man gets up. And what Jesus is doing at that point is he is showing the teachers of the law, the ones that say, you don't have the authority to forgive sin. Actually, I do. Because I did the harder thing, which is to get somebody to walk. 
And so that means the easiest thing that I said is also something that I can do. God has given me the authority to forgive sins. So that's his first claim. The second is similar. He doesn't just tell us he has the authority to forgive sins, but he tells us that he is committed to dealing with them. And this is the claim that we see in the second story that was read for us there, uh, starting in verse 13. Jesus is out by the lake. He comes across a tax collector called Levi. He calls him. Levi immediately follows him. And then a bit later on, he's having dinner at Levi's house. Uh, And what we see there is that he is there at Levi's house and many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. That's the key phrase. And we can miss the significance of this because we're so culturally removed. But this is scandalous. This is like having dinner in a crack den. You see, tax collectors were Jews who were taxing their own countrymen in favour of their Roman oppressors. And sinners were those people who had rejected the Jewish law. And so for a nationalistic religious community, these were the bottom of the dung heap. These were the people that you don't want your daughter to bring home to you for dinner because they were traitors to their nation and traitors to their God. And so the last place you would expect to see a morally upright, respected teacher of God's word to be was right there in the middle of them. And yet that is where Jesus was. And so quite naturally, the teachers of the law ask a question, Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus' response is telling. It's the final verse of the passage. You should see it there in your outline. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And it's here in this statement that we see what Jesus is really on about. He might have been a renowned healer. He might have been a renowned great moral teacher. But his mission in life was to call sinners like you and I to himself so that we might receive forgiveness and the blessing of new life. And one day the promise was that he would restore the world to its problem-free state and we would live with him in it forever. So what we see Jesus saying is that he is the solution. He has not only the authority to forgive sins, but he is committed to forgiving them. And so when we string all of that together, what do we see? Well, we see a definitive statement of what is wrong with the world. It's not social, it's not economic, it's not psychological, it's spiritual. Our problem is sin, and it resides in each and every one of us, and it makes us liable to the judgment of God. But in Jesus saying that to us, we also see a definitive statement of the solution to our problem. And that's the forgiveness that Jesus, in his great mercy, is able to give to us and is willing to give to us. And those two statements, I think, should confront us. And they should make us ask the question, well, what do I do now? Where to from here? Uh, What do we do with what Jesus tells us about the world? And I want to suggest that there are three options. The first option is that you can dismiss Jesus. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you hate on him, but it just means that you let his voice recede back into the mass of other opinions and voices. I want to say you're free to do that. That is is your right. But I want to encourage you not to just do that out of hand, because Jesus never claims to just be one voice among many. Um, C.S. Lewis, who's one of the great Christian apologists of the 20th century, once said this in a book called Mere Christianity, uh, talking about Jesus And the significance of his voice. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. Apparently that's what people called themselves back then. I don't get it either. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the son of God 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In other words, Jesus' voice is not one among many. What he claims about himself is more than just a clever sociological insight. He claims to be the redeemer of all that is wrong with the world. So if you dismiss him, you've got to be sure, because the stakes are high. So that's option one. Option two. Maybe you've been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, Maybe it's something that you've just heard today uh, from Jesus in Mark's gospel, and it finally makes sense of everything that you've seen and experienced. But the second option is that you accept Jesus as Lord, as speaking the truth. Now, the danger, of course, if you take this option is to kind of go, well, yep, cool, I have a sin problem, Jesus can deal with that problem, but then never actually ask him to deal with it. Now, forgiveness doesn't happen by default. It's not like the government government stimulus payments that you suddenly kind of appear in your bank account without needing to do anything about. Like the paralytic and his friends, you've got to come to Jesus in faith and throw yourself on his mercy. It means fundamentally an acknowledgement of wrongdoing against God and a commitment to realign your life with his. So that's the second option. If that's you, come and talk to me. Talk to the friend that brought you. um, Chat about it. Think about what that might look like. uh, And you can work it out together with us. So two options there. You can dismiss Jesus. You can accept Jesus. Um, or the third one, you can explore Jesus. And maybe, maybe you can, you're kind of hearing me saying, you know, just accept Jesus just on the spot. It's like, whoa, Matt, slow down. You don't propose on the first date. And I get that, right? The last 25 minutes or so, we've talked about what? The existence of a creator God, the idea of final judgment, miraculous healing, and the fact that TikTok might just be bad for you. That's a lot to take in in one little space, isn't it? And that's especially true when our society has raised us to question so many of the things that I have taken for granted in this talk. And so I want to float that third option with you. Number three, you explore Jesus. A 30-minute talk is not going to do enough time, not give us enough time to do justice to Jesus or to lay out all of the compelling reasons that we have for following him. And so our invitation to you today as a Christian union, as you, as you sit there and listen, is that you come back and you sit down with us and read Mark's gospel with us. Uh, we have these little booklets called Mark Uncover. They've been creatively arranged up the front there for you. Uh, it's the gospel of Mark, the book of the Bible that today's passage came from. Uh, and I want to encourage you, come and grab one and we'll find somebody to read it with you. You can ask all of your hard questions. You can ask all of your offensive questions. You can dig really deep. You can figure out who the person of Jesus really is. Uh, And I want to say, if that's just a bit weird or overwhelming, uh, I just want to say, just try it. Um, Just meet up for an hour. Just give it a go. Uh, Do it with a friend who brought you. If you didn't have a friend, well, we can give you a friend. Uh, that's, That's easy. We can give you the things you need. What you need to do is make the commitment to say, you know what, I actually want to check this Jesus guy out and, and, and figure out whether what he is saying is as legit as these guys are saying that he is. Because what do you have to lose? What's one hour? What's a couple of hours when it could mean the difference, not just for this life, but for the life to come? So you can dismiss Jesus, you can accept him, or at the very least you can explore him and work out Uh, which of those final two things you're going to do. Because as we saw with C.S. Lewis, ultimately there are only two things you can do with Jesus. You can accept him or you can deny him. Uh, And I want to say make an informed decision whichever way you go.